Father in heaven, uh, this is, again, the last couple of weeks have been pretty difficult uh, passages. You have been speaking very directly to us. And tonight you do that again uh, through this passage in Mark chapter 8. Lord, I pray that um, you would use this passage uh, to challenge us, to show us who you really are. Uh, Lord, a lot of us have been hearing about the Bible our whole life, and it leads us to a boring yawn. I pray that you would shake us out of our complacency. And Father, even more importantly, I pray that as we hear these words from Jesus, that we would remember um, that you love us, that you care for us, and that um, you're committed to us, even um, when we don't do things perfectly. Uh, you do not give up on us, but you continue to be at work. And so I pray that we would believe that tonight, that not only are we a bigger mess than we realize, but you are a God of grace and love, and in you is more love and mercy and grace than we could possibly imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone has a version of Jesus. We all have a version of Jesus. And my question tonight, and really Jesus' question in a way, is what is your version of Jesus? Who is your Jesus? Fred Harold, he was the campus minister at Tennessee in Knoxville uh, many years ago, but now he's a pastor out on the West Coast. And he used this quote. I'm not quite sure where he got it from, but I really liked it, and so I'm going to share it with you. And there's some funny parts in it, so feel free to laugh uh, if you want. <laughs> he's talking about this idea of everybody has a version of Jesus. And he says or whoever he get, got this from, says there's the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and advocates for family values and owning firearms. There's the Democrat Jesus who's all against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's open-minded Jesus and he is the Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as they are. <laughs> There's touchdown, touchdown Jesus. And he's the Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes for Super Bowls. <laughs> Then there's gentle Jesus, who's meek and mild and has high cheekbones and flowing hair and walks around barefoot wearing a sash while looking very German. <laughs> there's hippie Jesus, and the hippie Jesus is the one who teaches everyone to give peace a chance and who imagines a world without religion and helps us to remember that all we really need is love. Then there's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential and to reach for the stars and then buy a boat. <laughs> the spirituality Jesus. And this is the Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine and would rather have people out in nature finding God while listening to some really spiritual music. <laughs> there's platitude Jesus. 
This is the Jesus who is good for Christmas specials and greeting cards and bad sermons inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, to stick it to the man, and to blame things on the system. And lastly, there's guru Jesus. That's a wise Jesus who's an inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you to find your center. Interesting, isn't it? Everyone has a version of Jesus. And what ends up happening is more often than not, we end up making Jesus into who we want him to be rather than worshiping him as he really is. That's what's happening, That's what's happening in this passage. The first half of the book has been building with this question of who is Jesus, and it culminates in Mark chapter 8. Look at verse 29. Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, Who do you say that I am? And at first glance, yeah, Peter's right, and he is right. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the anointed one, so his words are correct. He is, in fact, the Christ. But Peter's concepts of what kind of Savior and Messiah Jesus is, is dead wrong. He makes Jesus into who he wants him to be. We look at this passage, and Jesus, in this passage, essentially says, I am a suffering Savior. I am the suffering servant. And Peter comes and says, Jesus, that's not my dream for my life. That's not what I thought I was signing up for when I decided to follow you. My dream, this is Peter's grid, was what I saw in the Old Testament. Those kings didn't suffer. Those kings were rich. Those kings lived in luxury and comfort, and they had power, and they had money, and they ruled over people. They were served. They did not stoop low and serve the needs of others. That's what I want. And Jesus refuses to be tamed. And he comes to us in Mark chapter 8 and he pushes us off the fence. Some of us are straddling the fence with Jesus. And here he pushes us off and forces us to ask a very specific question. Who do you say that I am? Three things tonight. You can see the outline printed before you. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus have to die and shed blood? And lastly, what does this mean for our life? So who, why, and what are the three points tonight? Let's look at number one. Who? Verse 27. This is interesting to me. Look at verses 27 and 28 and 29. Jesus initially asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? So, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying about who that I am? And then in verse uh, 28, you see Peter's giving some answers. And what's interesting and striking to me about this is it's very clear people didn't know what to do with Jesus. They're trying to figure him out. They cannot make sense of him. And then Jesus takes it and goes straight to their heart and makes it very personal in verse 29. He goes from people out there 
in a sense, to people in here. And look at what he does. He forces them to say, no, I don't want to know what they think about me. I want to know about what you think. Who do you say that I am? Not what your parents, not who they say that I am. Not who your friends say that I am. Not what RUF says about me or your church. This is directed at you and directed at me tonight. And friends, this is a very, very important question. Because at the end of the day, whether or not you believe or embrace Christianity comes down to this one thing. Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Jesus claims all throughout the Gospels, remember chapter 1 many weeks ago, Jesus says, I am the Christ, I am the anointed one, I am the Messiah. Translations, I am God in the flesh, Jesus says. And here's what you have to realize. That might sound really arrogant to you and me as we hear that, but Jesus is the only religious leader to say that. He's the only one to make that claim. And that is why you've got to deal with Jesus. You've got to figure out what you think about him. And over the years, people have had many different responses to that question. For example, people have said, good teacher, great man. He was a very good teacher. He had profound spiritual teaching. He was a prophet. He taught some really great things about caring for the poor and turning the other cheek and forgiving your enemies. That's who Jesus is, just simply a good teacher. But friends, Jesus could not have been just simply a good teacher. How so? Well, because think about it. Jesus taught that he was God. And that makes no sense whatsoever to say that he was a good teacher if he was teaching something false. For example, if your teacher taught you 1 plus 1 equal 10 or 5, would you say that they are a good teacher? No. You would say they are, are a horrible teacher because they are teaching you wrong things. Jesus can't just be a good teacher. Other people have said that he, he's the biggest liar on the planet. He's just making this stuff up. And the story kind of goes, well, you know, how do we really know that this stuff really happened? I mean, how do we know that he claimed to be God? Surely all the people that are following him are just making this stuff up, and over years and years the tales just got bigger and bigger and they made it up, the church made it up, and wrote the Bible. They didn't have any idea what Jesus really said. Think about that just for a second. And listen, there are lots of things I could say in response to that, but one quick response that I think is really, really big, particularly as we think about the Gospel of Mark, is the Gospels, particularly Mark, it was the first Gospel written, was wit written way too close to the actual events. The Gospel of Mark was written in the time of the eyewitnesses. Ten to fifteen years after the death of Jesus. Pause the tape. That is huge. Think about that. Ten to fifteen years. 
Time of the eyewitnesses. So let's just say I were to leave Ole Miss and move across the country and you graduate and now you're 35 years old and I write this article about the football season this year and I just start throwing stuff out left and right, making stuff up, lying, embellishing, and you were to read that article, what would you say? That didn't happen. He's making this stuff up. Friends, if Jesus was lying and his disciples were making up false stories, Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. Why? Because there would have been eyewitnesses there that would look at that and refute it and say, that never happened. So it can't be just one big lie. Or maybe another option is he's just insane. Jesus is completely crazy, a complete lunatic who is unstable and has just simply, that's the way we explain a way that Jesus claims to be God. But think about that one for a second. To me, that's really hard to be convinced of and really far-fetched for this reason. Over 2.2 billion people claim to have been converted to Christianity and claim to have their life changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their testimony. How in the world can you account for 2.2 billion people being changed by a lunatic? That seems really far-fetched and seems like a dead-end conclusion. Jesus couldn't simply have been crazy and a lunatic. So then where does that leave us tonight? Well, the only other option is to say exactly what Peter says here. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are God in the flesh. You are the Lord of the universe, the Messiah. And that's the question for you. Jesus looks at you and says, who do you say that I am? Secondly, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Look at verse 31. Jesus is referring to himself, and he says, the Son of Man, not might suffer, says the Son of Man must suffer and die. Friends, The death of Jesus was an absolute necessity. Why was it an absolute necessity? Well, think about it this way. Most people claim to believe that most people who believe in God, if you were to do a straw poll and you were to say, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. Do you believe God's good? 100%. People who claim to believe in God would say, yes, of course God is good. I love C.S. Lewis here in Mere Christianity. He says, if you say that God is good, work out the implications to that statement. And he essentially says, if God is a God of absolute goodness, then he must be opposed to evil and greed and oppression and injustice. If God is good, he has to be his essential nature has to be opposed to sin and evil. And if he were to excuse that away, then he would no longer be good. 
How so? Well, think about it this way. In a room this size, some of you have had some really awful things that have happened to you. That have been done to you against your will. How would you feel if every evil that you experienced were to go unchecked? Let's broaden it out. How would you feel of every form of oppression and cruelty and genocide and poverty and sexual abuse? If that were all to go unchecked, what kind of God would God be if He looked at all of that ugliness and shrugged His shoulders and said, eh, not that big a deal. I don't want to deal with all that. I'm just going to love them. If a human judge did that in this town, he would be, or anywhere, they would be run out of town so fast that they couldn't see straight. And they definitely, we would look at that judge and say, he is not good. Well, that's kind of what it's saying about God. If God does not uphold justice and does not oppose evil and hold wrongdoers accountable and just shrugs his shoulders, he is not good. Oh, but he is good, isn't he? You see, the reality is that God is good. The truth is that he is a God of absolute goodness and because of that... He must, by necessity, oppose evil in the world. And he must punish sin. And if you've been tracking with me thus far, you see where this is leading, don't you? If God is unswervingly committed to punishing evil and sin, the question then is, what about me? What am I going to do with the sin in my heart and the evil in my heart? And if you were here last week, remember Mark chapter 7, I didn't say it, Jesus said it, said evil and sin of all kinds lives inside of you. And so what do we do with me? You see, that's the question, isn't it? Well, and that's why it's called the good news. Because the good news... It's not only that God is good and just, but God is also loving and gracious. So loving and gracious that He says, I would rather be with you than give you what you deserve. And so you know what God does? He provides a way out for you from under His justice. Verse 31 The Son of Man must die. You see, someone had to undergo the justice and the wrath of God. And Jesus says, that will be me. I will uphold God's justice by submitting to the justice of God in your place. Let me illustrate this way. Let's say you've committed a horrible crime. You're arrested. You're standing before the judge. The judge is there and he looks at you and says, 100% you are guilty and justice must be served. I'm giving you the death penalty. 
the handcuffs are on you and you are being led out of the courtroom to go to the electric chair and the judge then stops you and says, wait a minute, there is someone who has volunteered, volunteered to die in your place. And you look around and you, you don't see anyone and you're like, who would do that and why would they do that? And the judge looks and says, they are volunteering because they love you. And because they would rather die and see you live. And then the unthinkable happens. You're still looking around and then the judge stands up from behind the bench and he takes off his robe and he goes and he sits in the electric chair and he dies in your place. He dies in the place of the guilty. You see it? There it is. Justice is served. And at the very same time, it was an act of incredible love and incredible grace. Friends, unless you believe in the judgment of God, you will never know how deeply God loves you. You'll never be moved to the core of who you are and the core of your being and be moved to praise into prayer unless you realize how much God was willing to suffer in your place. You see, someone once said, probably Tim Keller, <laughs> God is so just that He had to die for you. But at the very same time, He is so loving that He was glad to die for you. Third point, the what. And before I get into the what, I, I want to I make sure we're clear here. You've got to get point two before, there's intentionally, before we move to point three. You've got to see how committed Jesus is to you. You've got to see, it's the whole indicative comes before the imperative. What, before Jesus ever tells you what to do, He tells you that you're His and you belong to Him. And what we see is that Jesus went to the cross first. Jesus was the first to deny Himself. Jesus was the first to die before He ever calls us to die. Keep that in mind. Point three, the what. And so the question then is, if we confess Christ and we understand what Jesus has done for us on the cross, what are the implications of that? What does that mean for our life? What is the so what? Well, Jesus answers that question for us in verse 34 and 35. So look at those verses with me. And notice Jesus calls the crowd to come to him. So it's not just the, the disciples the committed disciples, it's everyone. And look at what he says. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. me. Whoever loses his life for the gospel will save it. And what's interesting is Luke's account of this. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Listen, if you've been coming the last couple of weeks, it's been tough i got to sit in this passage all week. I know how tough this is. And, but here's what I want. I want you and I want my own heart to take this head on without flinching. 
And I'm just trying to call it like I see it in a sense. But if you look at this, Jesus is saying if you're going to be his follower, there's got to be some self-denial in your life. There's got to be a no in your life. Meaning you've got to say no to some things. And at a basic level, I think what Jesus is saying is there's got to be some giving up of the way that you naturally want to go in and of yourself. Something that you did before that maybe you no longer do for no other reason than the fact that you love Jesus so much. And I know that probably sounds crazy for some of you tonight. We live in the Bible Belt, and we are actually surprised oftentimes that Jesus might suggest that we actually give something up or deny ourselves. But friends, I think if Jesus is saying anything, He is saying that following Him might mean that certain sexual practices or habits or the ways you use your sexuality might need to be given up. Or that the way you think about alcohol and use alcohol might have to change. Or maybe you can't be trusted alone on the internet because you're addicted to pornography and so you might have to get an accountability program in order to get help and to start moving towards healing and your addiction to pornography. Jesus is saying that following Him involves some kind of no. Some kind of willing assumption of suffering. Some kind of cross that you are taking up for no other reason than the fact that Jesus would want you to do it. And so what is it for you tonight? When is the last time that you've given something up because you love Jesus? Better yet, have you ever given anything up for Jesus? And friends, I say this gently, but if you have never given up anything to follow Jesus... The question then is, are you following the real Jesus? The Jesus we see in Mark chapter 8. Or a last question might be, what question are you currently avoiding because you're afraid of the answer? And listen, I want to be careful here because when we start talking about self-denial, your no might not necessarily be someone else's no. We're all different. We're all wired differently. And notice what Jesus says. He addresses that. What does He say? Deny who? Yourself. That means your denial can't be thoughtlessly imposed on someone else and made to be their denial. And it's also worth noting here is that Jesus is not describing this idea of self-denial. It's not the Christian life is boring and ascetic and lifeless quest. No, that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is pushing back on us. And I know I need it. We live on a campus where the idol of comfort 
is alive and well. Not only on our campus, but in our culture. Think about how prevalent that is. Think about how the world comes and tempts us to believe that life and true life is found in the American dream and as much self-indulgence as you can possibly give and as much self-pleasure as you can take in. The world says that's where life is. Happiness, we would, they would, the world even says, is found in a denial and an avoidance of suffering. And then Jesus comes. And then Peter comes, and the Apostle Paul comes, and they say no. You see, Jesus preached a totally different gospel than the one often we embrace in our culture. Because you see, Jesus knew that the real life is the one you might lose. Friends, Those are the terms from following Jesus. There are no others. I wish there were. Let's pray.